about it. Let me God, we thank you for this time together. We are excited to be in your house, to come, to give praise. We uh, give expression to that by singing. We, we, we read your word and we share uh, our stories. We are gathered around tables again this morning and our prayer is that we wouldn't be too intimidated by that, but that it would be just uh, a way of getting to know each other and being able to develop our own confidence in our own story of the gospel of grace and salvation that has come into our life. As we look at just briefly at this passage this morning, I pray that it would stir in our hearts, that it would uh, warm them with affection for you and um, character and colour our conversations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing in this conversation this week on sharing our faith. We're, we're looking at uh, encouraging ourselves and um, to be able to be comfortable with our faith, to be able to have a confidence about it in sharing our, our deepest beliefs and our convictions and about how they come and how they shape our lives uh, and become uh, what Paul described in this passage is what we stand in. What we, uh, what we base our lives in, uh, the hope of our salvation and all this sort of stuff. But then also, I suppose we see in that, it's something that Paul shared with them, that they go on and, and shared with others. And hopefully as we're having conversations about this and we're looking at it, we're, we're encouraging us to do it in a way that is truthful, that is authentic to what we have received uh, and it's transparent, but also that is respectful and thoughtful to someone else who holds another view. Uh, as we share our faith, have we sought to understand uh, where it is that the other person's coming from? Have we bothered to listen to their story before we start um, jamming our story uh, down their throat? Well, last week, I uh, tried to get us to think about our own, kind of our experience of our Christian faith. How when the the gospel that, that was shared, this news about Jesus comes and it grips our hearts and then it comes and it changes everything in us. Thinking about that, we, we, we literally become new creations. We've changed pathways of our hearts and changed motivations of our hearts and we looked at that in places like John 3 and 2 Corinthians 5. And then those transformed hearts, they come and those transformed motives, they translate into transform business practices. They translate into transform relational uh, practices, sexual ethics, transformed approach to how we use our money and, and, our, and our resources. It'd be good to know the details, wouldn't it? So just before we get going, what I'd like you to do, because uh, we asked, we got thinking at the end last week, this week I want to start by getting you around tables. We're always risky because who knows whether you're going to agree with me or come up with some crazy idea that I never thought of. But just now, for like two minutes, around your tables, what stops you What stops you from sharing this experience, this lived out uh, faith that we know we have, uh, that Paul talks about, he shared it with you, and you know you've got it, and you've taken your stand in, but then he's got to go and remind them of something. Uh, just briefly, I'll give you two minutes, and then I might see uh, what you come up with. Fire away, chat away. What are the obstacles to sharing the, the experience of your faith? What do we come up with? Anybody want to shout out and let's see if we can agree where the mind of Christ is, where two or three are gathered, they'll agree on something. 
Anybody got something where they go, you know what? This is what this is what stops me. Ridicule. Yeah. Yep. Um, the sense that you don't match, that you're not living up to the the, the message that you proclaim. Right. Eh? We got to keep going because we're not on topic yet. Language. Language. Yes, Christianese. Yes. So it's, uh, it's not just our first impulse. Yeah. Any other, anything else that hinders people? I, I have heard this excuse for why I don't share my faith a million times, and it's the content of today's sermon. Uh, anything else? Venlo. Your husband was like, yeah, pick my wife. <laughs> yep. All right. We're going to have to get it this next week, aren't we? What about the content? What about the actual content of what our gospel is? Who can put that together in a nice little succinct, ah, there it is, here's my brief of evidence. That's today. We're looking at the content. And by the sounds of these tables, uh, we might have to um, delay Advent a week and look at some other stuff. At the heart of the Christian faith is something we call a gospel. And, and Paul calls this gospel, he describes it as a power. He talks about it in Romans 1, 16, in Colossians and First Peter. And it's a power that creates and sustains this new life that we all experience. And the scriptures teach us that this content, the content of this power, it has content, there's, like, there's words to it, there's, there's actual information involved. And it's that that creates, uh, that has this power, that creates an entire way of life that affects literally everything about us. This, this power to change lives, to transform them, to bring them into the kingdom of God, to bring this newness of life, comes from the uh, sharing of a particular type of news. And the gospel writers called it the gospel. It's all different ways of... Uh, it can't, it, of, like we say, oh, well, the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of John, but they're not quite meaning that. Gospel comes from this Greek word, euangelion, which essentially means, and there's, there's plenty of nuance to it, but good news, the announcement of some good news. And usually, euangelion, this announcement of news, was good news of world-changing events that shaped history, like the birth of a new king or a Caesar, a victory of a general in a war, and someone would come and announce the good news of victory or the good news of a new... Uh, God on earth, a new Caesar had been born or something like that. Uh, the New Testament writers borrowed this to describe the core truths and beliefs of the Christian faith that it is communicated by news, that it is communicated by joyful good news. And this is what separates Christianity from every other religion on the planet, really. Christianity is not uh, fundamentally uh, a product of an ethical code, uh, a set of rules and standards that you must comply with. It's not a, it's not a kind of a, a presentation of good advice that you try hard to follow. It's not a, pr- a product of a philosophical system of beliefs, if you like. Christianity is a community of people who have been transformed by hearing the hearing and receiving of a particular news known as the gospel. News that has at the center of it who Jesus is and what he's done. With respect to our relationship, with respect to the relationship between 
uh, God and humanity. Uh, maybe changing us from, from facing some categories, you know, facing God as a, as a righteous judge to knowing God as a righteous father, from receiving justice from God to receiving mercy. Christians are a community of people whose faith is based on the works of another, not themselves, not their adherence to a system, their, 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 their ability to do good works, none of that. And at some point, we need to be able to articulate that. We need to be able to share the content that saved us and the content that transformed us. As compelling as actions are, uh, they are ultimately not what creates faith. Good works, our morality, are not the gospel. There's certainly attractiveness to the gospel. There's certainly reasons for sharing the gospel. At some, but at some point, we need to speak and share the news about Jesus, who he is and what he's done. Otherwise, the hero of your story is you. And you make a very, very poor saviour. So today we are going to look at the content of the gospel. J.I. Packer, he just states the gospel thus. He says, God saves sinners. Gospel. That's more of a statement. What we want is the building blocks uh, of the gospel. So in his first uh, so-called letter to the Corinthians, Paul gives what is perhaps the most succinct description of the gospel that informs our faith, that brings about this salvation. That is of first importance. These are the things of first, the fundamental things to share, which doesn't necessarily mean you need to lead out with it, like smack someone over the head with these little lineup of truths, but you must get there. You must at some point end with this description here. And just as an aside, as we look at this letter from Paul, 1 Corinthians is probably the oldest uh, letter in the New Testament, as in it's, it's one of the first pieces of New Testament scripture that's written. The strong consensus is that 1 Corinthians was written within uh, 20 years of the death of Jesus. So it would be like if eyewitnesses to the World Trade Center attack were now to sit down and compile a little book, all their different uh, eyewitness views would come and compile a book. It's an event that's happened in the lifetime of those, in the living memory of those who are, who are reading this book, this letter. And the reason why I kind of bring this to your attention is the same reason that Paul gives in verses 5 to 8. The eyewitnesses are around. The eyewitnesses to this content of this gospel, this historic content of things like the resurrection, which forms a key component of the gospel, are alive. You can go and fact check whether Paul is making this up. In chapter 15, Paul is summarizing and reminding these first Christians of the gospel that they've already previously been known to them. At some point in this 20 years between when Christ raised from the dead to this point of this letter, uh, they have heard this gospel, they have received it, and their lives have been saved. They are these new creations. You know you've been saved. You know you're a Christian. But he says, let's remind you of the persuasive argument the good and joyful news that achieved that. This faith is grounded in concrete historic facts as well as your personal subjective encounter with these facts. Paul's summary is of the things of first importance, the foundational, non-negotiable content which he shared. 
here is the irreducible core of Christianity at, you know, from Paul that leads to spiritual life. And guys like Tim Keller and Don Carsons and J.I. Packer and dozens of people can basically reduce this little bit down when they're giving their sermons uh, into four building blocks of first importance from the content of Paul's passage here. And I would tend to agree with them. Namely, that the gospel is about Jesus. That the gospel is about sin and substitution that the gospel is about history and resurrection and that the gospel is about astonishing, transformative grace. Right out of the gate, of first importance about this gospel is Jesus. Uh, Paul says, that Christ. And, this, and what he is doing is he's acknowledging who Jesus is in reference to what's happened. Uh, that Christ, uh, Jesus is God's long-awaited Messiah, agent of salvation and renewal. And then everything else that flows after this down the river in this passage grammatically points back to and explains the statement that Christ, that Christ did this, that he did this. This is the good news. It speaks to the person and the work of Jesus. All other religions hang their teaching on uh, their founders' instructions or their advice. In fact, their teaching and their advice is not even contingent on those people being uh, real people in history because the teachings of these people uh, are the nature of the religion, not the person themselves. As Don Carson points out in a, in a little sermon that takes about 45 minutes, just looking at this point, um, if you could prove that Gautama Buddha never lived... Not saying you can, but just hypothetically, that he never lived. Would, would Hinduism be destroyed as a religion? Would it be gone? No, because it's a religion of a philosophical system and traditions. It's principles. It's a, it's a set of principles. Anyone can articulate them. Not so with Christianity. Christianity anchors in who Jesus is and what he did. He must be real or it's all empty. Jesus is the promised Messiah who walked the earth, died and rose again. It is who he is and and what he did as a concrete person in history that is of first importance in the gospel. At the center of the Christian faith is the person of Jesus. Not advice about what you must do, not news about what Jesus has done, but who he is and what he has done in relationship to us and God. We're coming up to Christmas, and Matthew's account of the person of Jesus tells us that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, that Jesus is altogether God and altogether human. There's a, there's a starting point for the gospel coming into Christmas, talking about that in, in an In John's Gospel, he talks about how Jesus is the exclusive way to know God, that he is exclusively how we know God, that he is exclusive truth, and that he brings the exclusive quality of eternal life. In order for the Gospel to be the Gospel, it must speak about Jesus. It must speak about who he is and what he's done. Secondly, Paul 
goes on. And Jesus did a lot of stuff. And John's account of, in his gospel, at the end of his gospel, he says, the world is not a big enough place to write about, you know, if, if you wrote all the literature about what Jesus did, the world could not even contain the things that Jesus did. But when it comes down to what made it into the gospel, the one thing of importance that Paul reduces it down to is that he died for our sins in accordance to the scriptures. That's the next thing in this list that Paul writes. Of first importance is an understanding of sin, that he died, and substitution for our sins. That is a building block of the gospel. Jesus dies for our sins is kind of an ocean into a thimble, really. It's, uh, it's a big topic. For Paul and the scripture and all of scripture, sin has created alienation between humanity and God. It's created distance between God and humanity. And not because of some arbitrary breaking of a rule, but due to cosmic plagiarism, if you like. That sin is essentially when we substitute ourselves into the place of God. We make ourselves the authors of life. We take the role of God in our lives. Sin is the de-godding of God. It is the rejection of his love and the turning in on ourselves in self-love and self-worship. Sin is not just a disruption of law. It is a disruption of divinely designed love of the design of the universe, of shalom, of peace, of, of all of these relationships. We are created to know God and enjoy him, but instead we deny God and we're indifferent to him. We belittle him. It's a relational offense of disordered loves that we have placed ourselves in a position of hearts, uh, that in a position of our hearts, if you like, in the position of our affections and our identity that God was meant to occupy. It's why we build things like fences. It's why, we have a, it's why we have a war in Gaza at the moment. We seek to dominate. We seek to manipulate. And the plain fact of the matter is, is that we are not qualified for this role. So we keep turning in on ourselves and we keep uh, being in these broken, disordered relationships to everybody else. And our seeking this has corrupted God's beautiful design. That's the great blasphemy of the universe. Sin has created an offense between humanity and God and the just response is death. Death puts an end to sin, but at the same time it permanently fixes us as you know, out of the presence of God. So the news that Jesus has tasted death for our sin on our behalf in order to pay for the offense and then bring us back into a fixed position of relationship with God, of presence with God, is of first importance. That's kind of good news, yeah? This word for in the English language is a bit vague, but not for Paul. Jesus died for. When Paul wrote it, it had precise intent. It means on behalf of or in place of. Jesus didn't just die because of sin, some vague sort of, oh, here we go. Jesus died for our sin, in our place, for our penalty. He substituted himself into the place of judgment, of what, of what it meant for us. 
You know, our culture has no space for having a God who, who has issues with sin. It even has no place for Jesus stepping in and turning aside the wrath of God and taking it on himself. That idea seems primitive, it seems obscene, it seems brutal or whatever. But surely a progressive God is just loving and forgiving, just permanently elastic. Who knows where the boundaries are? Which is just disingenuous because all of us want justice. All of us have standards. And surely we want a God whose love is not completely unqualified without definition, without justice, is just completely elastic, that requires no accountability or relational substance. In the gospel, God, uh, the word that Paul uses is propitiates, he satisfies uh, the demand and he turns away the wrath, his own anger, through his own sacrifice, through his own act, through his own love. It is God who comes in the form of Jesus and takes our punishment, our penalty. He substitutes himself. This is at the core of the gospel. In a unity of purpose, an inseparable, agreed operation at the cross, God is dealing with sin as Jesus substitutes into our place. Jesus endures divine judgment so that we might receive divine favor, forgiveness and eternal life. There is no commercial transaction here. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to do 100 push-ups. You don't have to sacrifice a goat. You don't need to do a thing. God does all of the work here. The fact that all have sinned and are in need of this is incredibly equalizing. Paul makes the point here. He says, our sins. So Paul's writing about himself. Paul, who, at the, who, who is the best of people. He is the most moral, the most religious expression of humanity in his day, says Christ died for our sins, me inclusive. Jesus died in his place. After all the goodness and religious excellence, Jesus still had to die for this man, Paul. Not just for mad, crazy Gentiles and irreligious people, but for religious legalists like Paul. Christianity in its all have sinned, is the most leveling statement of inclusivity. The gospel comes and it humanizes us. We are all lost. We are all in need. All of us are not loving God as we should. And all of us are not loving our neighbor as we should. They are, that is not the gospel. That is a symptom of the gospel. <clears throat> there can be no superiority due to effort with the gospel. There can be no self-loathing due to failure. Jesus has died for all to make them right with God. It's ridiculous in its scope and its grace. It is, without doubt, good news. I'm behind on my slides. The third building block of first importance is that the gospel is based on a history, an event of the resurrection Jesus' death and resurrection are two events tied together in history. The one who is crucified is the one who rose. They are the same person. That's what Peter wanted confirmed when he wanted to investigate Jesus. He wanted to do some forensic evidence on this man that stood before him. Yeah, he bears the marks of the dude that hung on the cross that we put in the tomb. He's got all the evidence there. The resurrection is part of the gospel because of 
because the, the content of its news plays a role of the security of assurance of our past salvation and our future salvation. It answers the question, how can we be confident that this death of Jesus has paid for our sins? Well, if the wages of sin are death, that's the message of Scripture and the reality of existence. We die because sin has corrupted creation with all this decreational stuff and death fixes us in that space separated from God and no one evades this reality. The fact that death was unable to exercise its power of decreation, of permanent separation on Jesus must mean that he has overcome that punishment, that penalty, that reality in the universe with a more powerful life-giving agency with a life that death actually has no claim over and his resurrection is testimony to that paul says that jesus is the first fruits of what his death has accomplished there will be more people who share in this resurrected life jesus is the first evidence that there is resurrection that there is life eternal a quality of life not just oh you came back to life and you know the same thing happens, but a quality of life. The, the barriers between you and God are gone. The intimacy has come, and it's eternal. The resurrection is testimony to that. The Holy Spirit applies that new reality of Jesus' resurrections to those who have faith in its effectiveness, who, who hear this news, and all of a sudden we use this phrase, well, I use it all the time, our hearts are warmed with affection to God. Why? Because he died for me as a sinner. The resurrection of God is God's stamping paid in full over the penalty of death and no power over the prison of death. And it's not just a spiritual reality, but a physical one. One day you will, just as Jesus does, live in a resurrected body that is eternal. And death has no presence in it and no power over it. And we get this picture in Revelations where he says, and, and every tear was wiped away and there was no more sickness and there was no more death. And all relationships were great and awesome and, and it's eternal. And what else? We're in the presence of God. Paul says that the historic resurrection of Jesus is evidence for the truthfulness of the good news. And he says, I have the eyewitnesses. Not just people who claim to be changed, but people who saw Jesus post-death, post-burial, post-empty tomb. And here's a list of their names. If you are doubting the effect of this gospel on your heart and the realness of it, just go down the street and have a chat and, yeah, yeah, confirm it. Now, we can't go and see them, but you can bet your sweet bippy that if it wasn't true, this letter would have been laughed out of town. Trust me, first century Jews are far more sceptical about resurrection events than 21st century Australians. It's a whole topic in itself. So what we have to do is we have to keep reminding ourselves of the truthfulness of the gospel. We need to go back to the, our inert concrete facts, and that is scripture. That's where we must keep going back and reminding ourselves of the truths that have transformed our lives and our hearts. A final building block of the first importance that Paul speaks about is transforming grace. He mentions it three times here. Grace is God's approach. It was, it, that's his approach. Grace is not without effect. This whole thing does stuff. It, cha- it wasn't in vain, he says. It changes us. And then grace continues to be the relational, operational force of transformation in our lives. Our faith is a grace-fueled faith. 
The gospel is all by grace. By faith alone, in grace alone, in Christ alone. Those solas. It's not based on how awesome we are, but how incredibly awesome was the effectiveness of the love of God to save sinners in Jesus Christ. Tim Keller says, when he's just kind of dot pointing, he goes, because grace is so utterly undeserved, this is the motivation, the transformation, what grace does. It humbles your pride. And then at the same time, it lifts you to the moon in worth. Because grace is utterly unconditional, it empowers you. It gives you peace and it gives you insurance. The fact that you didn't have to earn it pretty much speaks to the fact that you can't do something to lose it. It assures you. It is not based on your abilities, but on the abilities of Jesus. Because it was infinitely costly, it shapes you into a gracious person. The fact that Jesus, who claims to be God in the flesh, died for you, not just in some general sense, and in a very deep to the bottom of your life, can see every little crazy thing you ever did died for you. It changes us. It was costly. The grace of the gospel uncurves us. Sin curves us in on ourselves. Grace curves us out toward God, towards others, from selfishness to selflessness to, 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 to worship. These are the things of first importance. These are the building blocks on which you stand and which, which reassures you of the credibility of your faith. And these are the building blocks from which you then go and share your faith. And to quote Matt uh, Smeathurst, nothing is more worth talking about, but nothing is easier to stay silent about. So, those building blocks in mind. Now, audience participation. Just for the next five minutes, I know you love it. Let's talk, talk around our tables. How would you like to have... The building blocks explain to you. How would you go about it in a way that engenders them to people, that digs into the context of their lives and answers some of the questions and the longings of their... How is the fact that Jesus is God who come into the world? How is it that God is not indifferent to us, that comes into our situation to know us, to live like us, and then to die for us? What does that tell us about the kind of God if we could imagine one if he was out there and here this gospel describes one? What does it mean that this infinitely person of infinite value and worth would substitute themselves into your place so that you could take his position before God and stand before God. How would you describe that? What would that look like? How does that feel? The historicity of it, the grace of it. Five minutes, uh, just talking. That's how we're going to wrap up and then we're going to sing a song and, and then we're into the exciting things of AGMs. But around your tables, this is just like, this is just us trying to get a familiarity, a, a sense of, and if, and if this story is not yours. If this is totally foreign to you, just listen. Just, just listen to what's been talked around the table. And trust, we're not trying to... The last thing you want to do on these tables is correct people, and, unless they're totally heretical. Um, but we're just listening and sharing and, and practicing, okay? 
Well, guys, you can keep those conversations going on as you invite each other back to your homes for barbecues and teas and lunches and various things. And rather than talking about the football or how Melbourne United are on top of the ladder, two games clear by everybody else, uh, you can get about talking about how how we go. You know, how we go about sharing this with our friends. But right now, we're going to finish this little time together by singing this song, "The Love of the Father." <laughs>